angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a permanent relationship. We are in Christ. However, we enter into another sphere of relationship, which has to do with our temporal relationship, the day-to-day walk with the Lord. At the moment of salvation, we are filled with God the Holy Spirit, filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit is our teacher and the leader for the believer in the spiritual life. But we can grieve or quench the Holy Spirit through sin. So whenever we sin, we grieve or quench the Holy Spirit, and we are in a status called uh, sarkikos in the Greek, which is translated fleshly, or carnality in the old King James. At this point, we are under control of the sin nature. How do we recover fellowship with the Holy Spirit? It's only in, in this sphere that we can learn the Word of God under the, and produce divine good, that which pleases God. Simple. 1 John 1.9 We don't go through an act of penance because the sins have already been paid for by Christ on the cross. This is simply an admission of guilt. God forgives and forgets. The sins are no longer an issue. It's not an issue of guilt. Guilt is just another sin. It is an issue of recognizing the completed work of Christ on the cross, that those sins are paid for, and we are restored to fellowship, and we can go forward in the spiritual life. And we do that through the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and learning the Word of God and applying it, which is our subject in this section of the uh, Epistle of James. So let's begin with a few moments of silent prayer for confession to make sure we're in fellowship, and then we'll start our study. Father, we thank you for the privilege and opportunity we have to fellowship around the teaching of your word. True biblical fellowship focuses on you, who you are, and what you have done in human history, specifically in relationship to our salvation and our spiritual life. Now, Father, as we study your word that illuminates the course of our existence, uh, illuminates our thinking, and has the power to transform our thought life and our, uh, the practice of our life, We pray that you would help us through the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, see how these truths apply to our lives and challenge us by them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we are studying the epistle of James, and we have concluded the first chapter and are at the threshold of chapter 2. We may not cross that threshold very far This evening, but we need to take some time for a little background before we proceed. For James chapter 2 contains one of the most debated and misunderstood passages in the New Testament. We don't get there till verse 14, but we need to do some background study right now and understand what's going on. Now, we have to recall a few things about James. First of all, this epistle is written in order to teach the believer some vital principles related to spiritual growth. This is outlined in the first chapter where we learn that the believer grows through tests. We go through various tests. Now, chapter 1 says, verse 2 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various tests, because you know that the testing of your faith... Produces endurance. 
Now the word there for testing in the second verse is the word dokimion, Greek word dokimion, D-O-K-I-M-I-O-N. Put that in the English for you. And it means evaluation. And that's the best way to, to translate that. We can have happiness, which is a major theme in this epistle. We can have happiness because we know that the tests we go through in life are for the purpose of evaluating our faith. And there we saw that the word translated faith there, pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S in the Greek, is not related to the expression of what I call the faith rest drill, the expression of our faith and trust towards God, but it has more of the objective sense of, of pistis, which is not the act of believing, but what is believed. And we use it that way often in English. We ask a person, what is your faith? And we expect to hear that they are perhaps Catholic or Protestant or Episcopal or something like that. So we use the word faith in that objective sense of what it, what is it what what is it that you believe. And evaluation testing is to designed to evaluate what doctrine has been learned and stored in the believer's soul because as that is tested through these uh, circumstances of adversity or prosperity and the believer applies the doctrine stored in the soul then it spurs the believer on in terms of spiritual growth. And that's what we see in verse 4. And let endurance, that, that the testing of your faith produces endurance. As you apply doctrine, you learn endurance, persistence, perseverance, and let that have its perfect result. And the idea there is maturity, that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. That's the theme of this epistle. Then in verse 19 and 20, James gives us three commands so that we can learn how to go through these tests of doctrine. And those three mandates are quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, in verse, from verses 21 of chapter 1 down through verse 26 of chapter 2, James is focusing or explaining unpacking the meaning of the phrase quick to hear. It means keep your mouth shut. You can't listen when you're talking. Keep your mouth shut and take in doctrine. Make the learning of God's Word the number one priority. The highest priority in the believer's life needs to learn what God has to say to him so that he can be in the process of renovating his life. Now, a lot of people may immediately respond to this and say, well, I go to church every Sunday. Sometimes I even go on Wednesday night. Now and then there's a men's Bible study or some kind of, uh, um, let's say, pep rally for Jesus in the local big city at the stadium, and I go to that too. So I'm listening. But James is going to respond, no, let me explain just exactly what I mean by hearing. Hearing is not just having your ears vibrated with sound. Hearing, true hearing in both, to both the Jew of the Old Testament and the Greek of the New Testament, the word for hearing implies listening. And you men all know that at times your wives will say, you don't listen to me. You've heard their words. 
But that's, you haven't responded. See, they're using hearing and listening in that same sense. It implies the proper response and application. So that's what James is talking about here. And hearing involves doing. And the Greek word for, for doing is this word, poies. It's a verb, P-O-I-E-I-S, and it means to do, to make, to manufacture, to produce. Uh, that's the, it's a very broad meaning, just as the English word do is, has many applications and synonyms. And James says that if you are listening to the Word, then you are to demonstrate that you are applying it. And that's the best way to understand it. It's not activity. This is not overt activity. And you'll hear many people focus on that. Well, this means that you need to be doing if you're a Christian. You need to get involved going to Sunday school and prayer meeting and Bible class. And you need to be getting out there doing evangelism and doing knocking on doors, passing out tracts, going out on the mission field where the emphasis is on all of this overt activity and not on the internal transformation of the soul through the renovation of your mind. And that's what this is focusing on. This is focusing on changing the believer from the inside out. And most churches are so busy getting people to change from the outside in that the inside never gets changed and you just have a lot of people walking around trying to act like they're supposed to act when they don't know how to think like they're supposed to think. And what James is saying is you have to make that transition. You start on the inside. The emphasis here is on production. And on the other side, what James is saying is that it's not just coming to church, to Bible class, and learning the Bible. A lot of people get caught up in that that trap of intellectualizing the Christian life. They learn all about the Bible. They learn all kinds of doctrines. This is a trap seminary students fall into because they're going through three or four years of intensified Bible study where the, the academic knowledge that they're learning is coming in at a rate that's, that far surpasses any rate of application. And so you can confuse how much you know academically with how much you are actually applying and think that you're much more mature than you actually are. But the goal that James is telling us is application of doctrine. So that brings us down to chapter 2. Chapter 2, we're going to see another example of the application of doctrine in the soul. The end of chapter 1, there was application number 1 in verse 26 and 27. The key to taking in doctrine, there were two prerequisites given back in verse 21. The first prerequisite we saw had to do with what we did prior to Bible class, and that is Uh, Confession of sin, which has to do with cleansing. This is the concept in the command, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. That's one prerequisite. The second prerequisite has to do with the, the means. Literally, it should be translated by means of humility. Only when you are humble... And that is a recognition of God's authority, what we'll call, what we call authority orientation, when we are recognizing that God has absolute authority over our lives to dictate to us exactly what to think, how to think, and what to do with our lives. Are we ready to, 
to receive the Word. So we receive the Word, that is, we learn the Word in an attitude of humility. Humility is equivalent to one grace orientation. We understand that we are nothing and God is everything. Grace is the, the, summarizes all of God's plan. Grace means that God has done everything for us and we do nothing. The opposite is religious activity. Religion is where man thinks that by his own efforts he can gain and acquire the approbation of God. And he does that through ritual. He does it through religious activity, through moral activity, ethical activity. And he thinks that somehow by doing all of these things, he's going to impress God and God is going to bless him. God never blesses us because of who we are or what we do, period. We'll get into that a little later. But that is never the cause of God's blessing for us. It starts with grace orientation. We understand it. it's unearned and undeserved, and it comes from God based on who He is and what Christ did for us on the cross. Second aspect that's involved in this, we have grace orientation, and that develops uh, a mastery of the details of life. We begin to realize that the details of life, friends, family, jobs, Money, uh, career, loved ones, sex, happiness, whatever it may be. I'm not happiness, sex, uh, money, um, social life. All of these things are secondary. They are not the source of happiness. They are the circumstances of life. And happiness comes from God and only from orient- orientation to God and, and grace orientations. And the third that flows from that, once we learn the master the details of life by putting our focus on God leads to a relaxed mental attitude. We begin to relax in the midst of trials because we understand the dynamics and what is going on. Now, that's what we see in verse 26 and 27. All of this is is under the category of humility and is a lack minus a lack of arrogance. When we are arrogant, we are self-absorbed And we focus on our own tests and trials and the adversities that we're going through. James 1.26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, and remember I said that's a bad translation. It's not the concept of religion in the sense of ritual and religious activity in the way we normally use the word. The Greek word is threskos and has to do with uh, application. The, the outworking of what you believe. So if anyone thinks that you are applying the doctrine you're learning, and yet it's not exhibiting itself in self-control of your tongue, sins of the tongue, then you are in self-deception, which is another category of arrogance. Self-absorption, self-deception, self-justification are the three arrogant skills. Then if you are in self-deception, then there's no application. You're just fooling yourself. In contrast, the positive application, this is pure and undefiled application in the sight of God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Now, James is applying a principle. He is not restricting application to taking care of people who are going through hard times. He's using that as the illustration because when we go through tests and trials, we have that tendency to become inward focused. And we're focusing on my problems and my difficulties and how, life, how hard life is right now instead of uh, application of doctrine toward other people. So the 
visiting orphans and widows in their distress indicates humility and a lack of self-absorption. And so at that point you can go forward. And to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now I hit that last week and we flew past it pretty quick. But what that shows is that the world, the term world in the Greek is cosmos. K-O-S-M-O-S. And it has to do with an orderly system of thinking that is the product of Satan. It is a system of thinking. And there are various different subcategories of the cosmic system. But all of this represents what we call human viewpoint. And there's all kinds of different human viewpoints. There's rationalism, there's empiricism, there's various religions, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, New Thought, Dynamics, all kinds of things come under uh, human viewpoint and, re- and represent different categories of cosmic, cosmic thinking. And cosmic thinking, human viewpoint, has its own ways of problem solving. Psychiatry, psychotherapy is just one system of problem solving. Now, some people ask, why is it that I am against psychotherapy. And the reason I am against psychotherapy is psychotherapy claims to have speak authoritatively about the nature of the human soul. That's what the word comes from, sukas. Speak authoritatively about the nature of the human soul and how people can solve problems, whatever the problems are in their life. But they base everything on empiricism instead of the Word of God. Now, even when you come along and try to baptize it with so-called Christian psychology, what you're doing is you're taking uh, Christianity and you're adding it to empiricism, and that always dilutes Christianity and destroys it because you're bringing into Christianity a whole load of human viewpoint assumptions and trying to merge that with the divine viewpoint of the Scriptures. And the result is always disastrous in people's lives. Now, it might work. They might become effective in life again. They may be able to have the appearance of resolving the problems in life. But that's not our job as believers. We are not in the process. And as a minister of the Word of God, I am not here to make you functional in life. I am here to teach you what it takes to go from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity so that your life glorifies God and you demonstrate the absolute sufficiency of the truth of God's Word in your life. And that comes by depending solely and exclusively on God's Word and not on some mix of God's Word plus human viewpoint thinking like like psychology. And so James is emphasizing that, that we have to keep ourselves in the midst of handling trials. We have to keep ourselves unstained by the Word. Now, the, the key word in this entire section is poies, practice, application. And in our study, several weeks ago when we were back in uh, verse 20, we went through the phrase, the, for the anger of man does not achieve or produce the righteousness of God. And at that point, I began to do some thinking about that concept of achieving the righteousness of God, that that has something to do with application. Now, scratch our heads a little bit and say, well, how is it that we can achieve 
the, the righteousness of God. So that's going to be why tonight is sort of a transition night because we have to answer this question and understand the, these concepts if we're ever going to handle the difficult passage coming up at the end of James chapter 2. So we're going to look at the doctrine of production righteousness. Now one of the things that makes it being a pastor a challenge is that as you're preparing to exegete a passage and you work through that passage and spend most of the day working through that passage and you get everything ready to go, suddenly you realize that if we're going to understand this, we need to have a little background. So at 6 o'clock, you begin working out what you're really going to teach that night instead of what you've been studying all day. That's what makes it so much fun. So all of a sudden, things began to come together in my mind, and we have to see if we can't under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, help these things come together in your mind. Point number one. The Greek phrase here that we're working with is karpon, as it's found in several texts, karpon dikaiosunes. This is what it looks like in the Greek. K-A-R-P P-O-N, then D-I-K-A-I-O-S-U-N-E-S. Now, dikaiosune is our word for righteousness. And karpon is the accusative form of the noun karpos, which it means fruit. The Eta Sigma ending here signifies that this noun is in the genitive case. So that is translated fruit of righteousness. And we'll look at two passages in a few minutes where that phrase is used. Literally, fruit of righteousness. So then we have to ask a question as good Bible scholars. We're not just going to look at that and assume we know what that means. As anyone who knows the Greek will recognize that whenever you have a genitive, that can have one of about, depending on which Greek grammar you're looking at, somewhere around 25 different classifications of the genitive. So you have to say, what kind of genitive is this? Now, the most predominant kinds of, uh, that you'll find of genitive is either a subjective genitive or an objective genitive. So here we get a little grammar lesson, and I know this is a little tough and dry for some of you, but it's very important to lay the groundwork so we understand why I'm going to say what I'm going to say when I get there. Otherwise, if I say it, you're going to go, huh? That's not what my Bible says. That's not what dear old pastor so-and-so taught me. So we have to lay the groundwork. Now, a subjective genitive looks at the noun in the genitive, which is righteousness, and says that that noun produces the action that's implied by the head noun. So that would be translated righteousness, and I'll use the symbol plus R, 
for righteousness. Righteousness um, would be the, this is uh, the fruit righteousness produces. So this is talking about the fruit righteousness produces, or righteousness produces a certain fruit. If that's the meaning, then what we're talking about is imputed righteousness. Now, what is imputed righteousness? When every human being is born, they are born with a sin nature. Here's our sin nature. That sin nature is characterized by minus R. No matter how good we are, it's no good in God's sight. All our works of righteousness are filthy rags in God's sight. No matter how good we are, it doesn't count for anything as far as God's concerned. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, God the Father poured out upon Him all the sins of human history. No matter how egregious they may be, whether it involves genocide, murder, adultery, mental attitude sins, whatever it was, every single sin in human history, of all the worst criminals, of all of the worst uh, megalomaniacs and dictators, all were poured out upon Jesus Christ on the cross. He paid for all of their sins. This is one form of imputation. God the Father imputed to Jesus Christ, who was perfect righteousness, the sins of the world. Scripture says, He who knew no sin was made sin for us. Now, He did not sin. He, he does not lose His impeccability at that point. He remains impeccable. But He bore our sins. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He bore or carried our sins in His body on the cross. So all of these sins are poured out upon Jesus Christ. Now, when we trust Christ as our Savior, His perfect righteousness is then imputed to us so that we who are minus R are covered over by the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. His perfect righteousness is credited to our account. That's what imputation means. It means to credit something to your account. You receive imputation several times every month when you pull out your plastic credit card and you purchase something. At that point, that charge is imputed to your account and at the end of the month you get a bill listing all of your imputations. So that we are get, and that is credited to our account so that this is now ours. That perfect righteousness is ours and when God the Father looks at us, He sees that we possess this perfect righteousness. Now let's take this a step further. God, in His essence, is comprised of perfect righteousness and absolute justice. What is the Greek word from which we translate righteousness? It is dikaiosune. What is the Greek word from which we translate the word justice? It is the same word. It is dikaiosune. They are, depending on the context, two sides of the same coin. The righteousness of God expresses the absolute perfect standard of God's character. So we say what the righteousness of God demands, what His standard demands, the justice of God executes. This is the application of the standard. Now, when God the Father looks down at us, He doesn't see our negative righteousness as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
he sees our plus R, our perfect righteousness. If he saw, if he was looking at our sin, then what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. But he sees our perfect righteousness. So what the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God blesses. So God then blesses us, not because of anything which we have done, but because we possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So you're never blessed because of anything you do. Going to church, applying doctrine, whatever it might be, prayer, all of these things, giving, have nothing to do with receiving blessing in the sense of a cause-effect relationship. That would be works. God blesses because of plus R. Now that imputed righteousness then provides us with a capacity for blessing. Now there's two categories of blessing that we need to look at in the Christian life in time. Category number one is logistics. Logistical grace blessing. Logistics is the application or is the provision of supply to troops. Logistics is also the any any um, provision of supplies for the basic function of an organization. Food, shelter, clothing, the air we breathe, uh, the teaching of the Word of God, all of these are part of God's logistical grace blessings. And those are the same for every single believer, whether they are advancing or retreating in the spiritual life, whether they are successful or they're failures, whether they are uh, carnal or spiritual. That is always going to be the same because God's always going to provide the opportunity for the believer, no matter how bad he's failing, to recover and go forward and grow the spiritual life. So if you're still alive, God has a plan for your life and you can recover and you can advance. Then we have advanced grace blessings, which I refer to as contingent blessings in time. They are contingent because they are waiting for growth. They're waiting, awaiting our growth in terms of production righteousness. Let me see if I've made this clear. We go back, we start off with a subjective genitive. Subjective genitive says that this is the righteous, the, the righteousness, the, the, this is the fruit that righteousness produces. Okay? That's imputed righteousness. This righteousness is going to produce fruit. But that construction, fruit of righteousness, can also be understood as an objective genitive. An objective genitive means that this is the fruit that righteousness... um, Excuse me. The noun in the genitive then is the production of the noun it modifies. So this is the the production of righteousness. Righteousness is the fruit produced. So... Right in, the, in a subjective genitive, righteousness produces the fruit. In the objective genitive, it's the fruit that's produced 
is righteousness. If you look at a Greek grammar, there's a third category. That third category is called a plenary genitive. Plenary means full. What that means is it functions as both a subjective and objective genitive at the same time. Both are, both are true. Both are present. It is a fruit that righteousness produces the imputed righteousness we receive at the moment of salvation. But it is a righteousness that is produced in the believer's life. So that as the believer takes in the Word of God and applies it and grows, he produces a righteousness. That righteousness gives him the capacity to handle the contingent blessings that God has for the believer. In eternity past, what I mean by contingent is that here's a timeline. Here's the creation of Adam and Eve. Way back here in eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had a council called the Council of Divine Decrees. And in that Council of Divine Decrees, in God's omniscience, because God knows all the knowable simultaneously, God decreed that there would be certain blessings in time for you as a believer. But they were contingent upon your spiritual growth. Because God is not going to give you something you can't handle. Just as you as a good parent will not give your child a car when they are six years old. They will destroy it and it will destroy them. You wait until they have the capacity to handle the responsibility, then you give it to them. It's not based on works, it's based on maturity. Once they're mature enough to handle the blessing, then you give it to them. That's what the spiritual life is all about. That's why it's not legalism. And this is something that very few people understand. They think that to get blessing from God, they have to do something. But what the Scripture says is you don't do a thing. God did it all. What you have to do is grow in spiritual maturity, and then God gives you the blessings He's already determined to give you, that He has on reserve. He's just waiting for you to grow to maturity and have that capacity. So that's part of the production of righteousness, carpon dikaya sune. So let's develop the analogy a little more. The analogy of that of fruit. Fruit means the production. That is, fruit is the production of a plant. Let's think about that in terms of analogy. With a plant, first you have a seed. That seed is equivalent to the new life that you have that's produced by the reception of the gospel message. This is implied in the phrase, the word implanted, back in verse 21. Although verse 21, as we saw in our study, is not talking about salvation at phase one justification. But because the word has been implanted, i.e. new life, there is growth. So new life, the seed is analogous to new life. That seed is placed in the soil. There's soil plus water, H2O, and that provides the nutrition, the nutrients for that seed to germinate and grow. That is equivalent to the Holy Spirit and Bible doctrine. 
the principles and precepts in the Word of God. Third, as the seed soaks up the nutrition, puts out the little buds, and those buds begin to grow and puts out small leaves, and then this main stem begins to grow, and it, it, it strengthens, it increases its, its width, and it becomes stronger and produces more, it, more and more uh, uh, leaves, and then it begins to produce buds, which produce fruit. In that process, in, in order to increase the fruit production, there is pruning. Pruning is equivalent to the testing, the evaluation testing, and divine discipline in the believer's life in order to cull from the believer's life those things which distract the believer from making doctrine the number one priority and advancing to spiritual maturity. So this is analogous to what takes place in the growth of a plant. What happens is as these two elements, the Holy Spirit and Bible doctrine, are applied and nutrition is is absorbed there, the result is growth. We'll look at that dynamic under a little different analogy later on. Now let's look at some passages. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. We don't have time to do a lot of detailed exegesis on these passages, but I want to tie about four or five passages together for you to give you an overview of this. What I have said so far, it's easy to lose the point, is that there are two categories of righteousness. There is justification, phase one righteousness, which is imputed righteousness, IR, imputed righteousness. I want to make sure I made this clear. At the moment of salvation, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God is, of Christ is imputed to you. When God looks at you and sees that perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, He declares you righteous. That's what justification means. At that point, you are declared righteous, justified by faith alone, and you are vindicated. Now I think we have all the elements in place. The next thing that happens is there is production in phase two. As you begin to grow, phase two is the spiritual life. There is production in in phase two, and this we're calling PR. Production righteousness. And what happens there? That production is fruit displayed in your life, and there is vindication in phase two, or phase two justification. But phase two justification is built on a different righteousness than phase one justification. Remember the word justified in the Greek comes from the same root Dikaiao is the verb to be declared righteous. It is from the root decay, which is also the root of dikaiosune. See, all this flows from the same word group. That's why you have to tie it together. You have to show how it all fits. Now, Hebrews 12.11 says, All discipline 
That's the pruning in the plant analogy. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. If we were in a Baptist church, I would say, and everyone say, Amen. <laughs> All discipline for the I'm not, so don't. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now when we look at this context, we're talking about, move back to about verse 5, where it talks of, starts introducing the topic of divine discipline. And so the, the subject is, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. This is a quote from Proverbs 3.11. My son indicates that the context is talking about believers, not unbelievers. Okay? So we're talking about believers. Believers, by definition, already have imputed righteousness. Therefore, the righteousness in verse 11 is not primarily imputed righteousness, but is the production of righteousness uh, from the imputed righteousness. This is the fruit that is produced in the growth and spiritual growth as a result of discipline and pruning. Now, we've looked at that. Glance over the Greek text a minute to see if there's anything else we need to bring out. No. Let's turn to another use of this phrase in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. This is point 4. Point 2 was the analogy of a plant. Point 3 was Hebrews 12, 11. Point number 4 is Philippians 1, 9 through 11. This is a very important passage in understanding the dynamics of spiritual growth. We don't have time to go into all of them, but I'll hit some high points. Paul is expressing his prayer to God on behalf of the Philippian believers. He says, In this I pray, what does he pray for? That your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Let's break this down a little bit so that we can understand it from the Greek. It says, This I pray that. This is, looks like a Hena clause. Looks like this in the Greek. Running out of ink. Try another one. Hina. Rough breathing mark is translated as an H. H-I-N-A. And this introduces a purpose or result clause. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. They're both involved. This is the purpose of the prayer. He is praying that, and that is all related to a goal. So Paul has a goal in mind. For the spiritual life, one of the problems that people often have in life is they begin processes, begin projects without having the end result in mind, and then they lose interest and they lose focus, and next thing, it's another thing that ends up on the shelf. Paul says, in essence, you have to begin with the end in mind, and I'm going to tell you what the end is for the spiritual life. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more. So this is an increase in love. Now, love, as we have said many times, is one of the most distorted and misunderstood concepts in the Scripture. Most people think of love in emotional and sentimental terms. When you apply that kind of emotional sentimentalism to God, I think we border on blasphemy. 
Because God is not some simpering sentimentalist sitting up in heaven with his hands going, oh, I just love everybody so much. Love with God is, in fact, God is the definition of what love is. And love is that which initiates God's plan of salvation for the human race. But the love of God works in conjunction with all of the other attributes of his character. They work in conjunction with his absolute righteousness and perfect justice. Let's expand what we've said before. What the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God supplies. So, what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns, but the love of God initiates a solution through the grace of God. Now, love as we normally think about it, love finds something, you have the the subject, the person who says, I love you, and you have the object, the person who is loved. Normally in human experience, when we say, I love you, we're saying there is something about you as the object of my love that I find attractive. And so I love you based on something I see in you. The trouble is that we can't apply that to God because God finds nothing attractive in us. God finds us to be obnoxious because we are minus R. So God cannot have this, which we have defined as personal love. God does not have that kind of love toward us as unbelievers. Once we are believers, He has that kind of love in us, toward us, because we possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. But prior to salvation, He cannot have personal love toward us, but He does love us, for God so loved the world that He gave His only unique Son. And Romans 5 eight. but God demonstrated His love toward us. So we use the term impersonal because there's just to emphasize the fact that it's there's nothing in the object that has personal attractiveness to God. Or we use the word unconditional. This is going to be very important to understand the illustration at the beginning of James 2. That is going to focus on the development of unconditional love or impersonal love for all mankind and personal love for God. God is the only one worthy of our personal love because He is the only one that is absolute righteousness. Now, we love many other many people, but they are not necessarily worthy or not always worthy of our love. Now back to Paul. Paul says to the Philippians that that is in these two categories, love for God and love for man, all true love for man, impersonal love for man is all based on personal love for God and we'll see that next time. That your love may abound. Now how can your love grow? Most people think, when you think of love as emotion, you will never understand this passage. Biblically speaking, love is not emotion. It has to do with knowledge. And that's why Paul then says, and can say this, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge. And here we have the phrase, in epinose. The Greek, it looks like this, en E-P-I-G-N-O-S-E-I. And this is in epinosis. This is a familiar word. And epinosis relates to full or applied knowledge. 
and is distinct from just gnosis, which is academic knowledge. Now, remember that distinction. There's a distinction between epinosis knowledge and gnosis, which is just academic knowledge. Love increases on the basis of epinosis knowledge, not just academic knowledge. There has to be a transference by means of the Holy Spirit when you respond in faith to the Word of God. First you learn it academically, then you accept it as the Word of God, and then the God the Holy Spirit transfers it into the uh, new uh, in, into the cardia or heart, the inner lobe of the thinking of your soul, and there it becomes epinosis or applica- knowledge that's available for application. So love abounds on the basis of epinosis. Now the reason I make that point is in Ephesians 3:19, Paul said that we are. He prays that we know the love of Christ, which surpasses. Knowledge, And you'll always find some fundy go to that passage and not, they don't know anything about the Greek. And they'll say, see, it's emotion, not knowledge. But the word there is gnosis. It's not epinosis. See, to know the love of Christ in your life, both the love for Christ and motivated by the love from Christ, it surpasses gnosis. Gnosis won't get it in the Christian life. Academic knowledge is just the staging point for epinosis. And we've seen that in our diagram of the dynamics of the grace learning spiral where the pastor-teacher communicates doctrine, the Holy Spirit makes it understandable to us as spiritual phenomena, pneumaticos doctrine, we exercise positive volition, it enters into the outer lobe or the outer sphere of the mentality of the soul called the noose in the Bible. There, after we understand it through meditation, contemplation, we make a volitional choice to believe it or to reject it. When we believe it under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, it is transferred into the innermost sphere of our thinking called the heart, where it becomes epinosis doctrine. That then becomes the basis for objective self-evaluation in terms of application. It's epinosis doctrine that does any good in the spiritual life. This is where all the value is. This is where all the application comes from. That's why you have a lot of Christians who flake out. A lot of Christians who say doctrine doesn't work is because all they've ever accumulated is gnosis. They don't ever think about it enough to truly metabolize it under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit and make it epinosis. So the love of Christ surpasses gnosis. That's because it's epinosis. That's what we see in Philippians 1.11. Now, that your love may abound still more and more by means of real knowledge and all discernment. Discernment's the application of knowledge in making decisions. Next result clause expressed by an ace plus the accusative. So that there's, a, there's an appli- further application of this. This is in stages. First, your love increases. How? By means of real knowledge or epinosis and all discernment. So that. So that there's a purpose. So that you may approve the things that are excellent. That's application. That's making decisions so that you'll make the right kinds of choices in life. So that you can approve the things that are excellent. And then we have another purpose or result clause expressed by Hina. In order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Now, what does that mean? What is sincere and blameless? Well, that's explained by the next clause in Philippians 1.11. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness. So you become sincere and blameless by 
being filled with the fruit of righteousness. And here I think it implies more the imputation of righteousness at salvation. Why? Because it comes through Jesus Christ. And it starts off with this word in that verse. Pep, play Romanoi. And this is the perfect active or perfect passive participle of the noun plerao, which means to be filled, uh, to filled up, to fill a capacity, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. So it starts at salvation with the imputation of righteousness and extends through sanctification through the production of Righteousness, all of which comes ultimately from and through Jesus Christ and culminates in the glory and praise of God because that is our ultimate goal, is to produce a life, have our lives produce something which reflects God's glory. What reflects? A mirror reflects. What did we see? We keep coming back to this mirror uh, concept and this mirror analogy. So the goal is... For the believer is to produce righteousness that they might be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, and that relates to the judgment seat of Christ. Now let's go to another passage in Ephesians. Ephesians, a familiar passage. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 are very familiar verses to most Christians, most believers, but 10 is sometimes overlooked. Let's pick up the context. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not because of faith. It's the genitive construction, dia plus the genitive, meaning that faith is the means. That relates to the fact that the value of faith is in its object, Jesus Christ, not in faith itself, but the object of faith. Jesus Christ did all the work. We, excuse me, we simply accept it. You've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. And then we have a, the next verse starts off with the Greek word gar. Gar always gives an explanation of what preceded. So there's an explanation telling us why God did all of this. Salvation by grace through faith. For we are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus, and there we have the verb that is based same noun that we find in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Created in Christ Jesus, what? For good works. And this is in the Greek, the phrase epi, the preposition epi, plus... The phrase ergois works agathois, good of in, works of intrinsic good. Epi plus the dative always expresses goal, result, and purpose. So the purpose for your salvation, the reason God did all this, is not just so He could have you in heaven because you have such a wonderful personality and it's so much fun to have you around. He he saved you to produce production righteousness. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, works of intrinsic value. Now, this is not to be confused with the works of morality and the works of the sin nature. This is one of the biggest confusions in the spiritual life 
is that somehow morality is equivalent to spirituality. But it's not. Morality is, is an ethical system that God provided for both believer and unbeliever. There are many unbelievers out there who are very virtuous and very moral and put to shame many Christians. Anything an unbeliever can do is not part of the spiritual life. The spiritual life in this church age, according to Galatians chapter 5 and a number of other passages in the Scripture, is uniquely related to the empowerment of God the Holy Spirit called in Ephesians 5.18 the filling of the Holy Spirit and Galatians 5 walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. It is produced in dependence upon God the Holy Spirit so it goes beyond human morality to something that is produced not by man's efforts but by the Holy Spirit. Man on the basis of the sin nature can produce uh, incredible morality that imitates spirituality. It's a counterfeit. It is not true spirituality. There are many Christians who go around patting themselves on the back because they're so moral, and yet it's all done in the power of the flesh and not through the power of God the Holy Spirit. So we are His work created in Christ Jesus for good works, that is, divine good, production of intrinsic value which God prepared beforehand, and then we have another purpose clause, in order that we might walk in them. This is to characterize the believer's life. Now, how does this take place? One more verse before we try to wrap this up. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Here we have the prohibition at the beginning. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So you have a prohibition. Don't be conformed. Now, what is that talking about? That is talking about in your thinking. Don't think according to the human viewpoint systems of the world. Don't think it includes both the way in which you think and the content of your thinking. Content is one thing. How you think, well, that's a different story. That's very complicated. I had a professor in seminary who used to say it's hard enough to think, but it's really hard to think about your thinking. Don't be conformed to this world. That's the prohibition. What is the positive mandate? Is to be transformed by renewing what? Your emotions. I want to go to church and feel like I met Jesus. No. It's not how you feel. It's what you think in the Christian life that matters. We are to be transformed. What's the word there in the Greek for transformation? This is illuminating. It is the word metamorpho. Which is where we get our word metamorphosis. 
a complete transformation, a complete renovation. We are to be transformed into by the be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Now this word, this verb is in the present passive imperative. Now metamorpho metamorpho only occurs four times in the New Testament, and every time it occurs, it occurs in the passive. When it relates to the believer, there are two passages that relate to the believer. Two refer to Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. The other two take place in Romans 12.2, the present passage in 2 Corinthians 3.18, which reads, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror. See, I'm trying to bring these all these disparate threads together. James talked about that the person who hears without doing is like a man who looks at the mirror and when he goes away he forgets. The Word of God forms that mirror. It is that pure, true, objective uh, criteria that we use to evaluate our thinking. With unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. This is reflected in the Word of God. When we do this, when we put ourselves in the position of taking in the Word of God... Where it is being, where we believe it, and it enters into the cardia of our soul, the innermost thinking realm of our of the mentality of our soul, and becomes epinosis. It constructs a mirror there. This is a self for self evaluation, true objectivity. When we look at that, and then we respond to what it shows. That is the doer. The hearer only doesn't respond to what it reveals. The doer responds and applies it in his life and in his thinking. And the result is that he is being... He doesn't transform himself. It's not an active voice. You don't do the transformation. By going... It's just like eating. You take in the food. That's your volition. What kind of food you want. If you want to be a vegetarian or if you want to eat food or if you just want to eat steak all the time or if you want to go down and eat fast food all the time. But your body breaks it down into various chemicals, primarily sugar, that, that enters into, and then it enters into the bloodstream. But at, once it goes past your, your epiglottis and goes down the trachea into your stomach, your volition is gone. From that point, it's automatic reflexes that God's built in to the metabolic process in your body, where it's broken down and it's and into the various chemicals necessary so that you can use it. Then you use it. That's the analogy. What happens here is once you exercise volition at this stage, and that becomes epinosis knowledge, God the Holy Spirit breaks it down as ap- application doctrine so that you can put it into practice as you have various situations, tests come up in your life, then you apply that to those situations. If you reject it at this point, this is like regurgitating what you've just chewed. That may be a little gross for some of you, but that's, the, that's where the analogy leads us. It never goes down into the stomach where it is broken down into the various chemicals necessary to provide nutrition to the muscular cells of the body where it can then be put into practice. So this is how all of this fits together. The production then 
is the application is then what the Bible calls production righteousness. It starts with imputed righteousness, where you, at the moment of salvation, Christ's righteousness is imputed to you. Now, where is all this going? We're going to see the importance in the next week in the, the first 13 verses of James 2 are going to cover another application in relation to production righteousness. This is going to bring into our bring this will bring to our attention what is called the royal law in verse 8 which has to do with unconditional love for all mankind you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you notice the application of the royal law in verse 8 comes after verse 5. Verse 5 emphasizes the growing believer who is an heir of the kingdom and is an heir of the kingdom because he loves God. Not all believers love God. So we're going to be looking at the doctrine of inheritance and expanding on that doctrine. We've covered it on Sunday morning in Galatians, but we're going to have to expand it even more now and understand what does it mean to be an heir of the kingdom. What does it mean to inherit the kingdom? Major confusion today. You go to passages like 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and following, lists all of these activities. Uh, uh, adulterers, liars, thieves, and various homosexuals, effeminate, will not inherit the kingdom. And what we saw in our study in Galatians, Galatians has a similar list in Galatians chapter 5, the people who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom. The average pastor out there, the average teacher, the average Christian thinks the phrase inherit the kingdom means to have eternal life. Simple refutation. If inherit the kingdom means have eternal life, then Jesus lied to the thief on the cross. Because he looked at the thief on the cross and he said, today I'll see you in paradise. But what was he? He was a thief. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, thieves will not inherit the kingdom. So inherit the kingdom means something more than simply having eternal life. So when we get down to verse 5, we'll have to do a study of inheriting the kingdom and its relationship to those who have love for God. And, not, and surprise, surprise, not every believer falls into the category of loving God. So we'll have to look at what it means to have personal love for God and how all of this relates to the application of the royal law, loving your neighbor as yourself. And all of that sets up that crucial, con- that 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 uh, crucial passage that is argued over by so many. What is the relationship of faith and works, starting in verse 14? And there we will talk about justification, and everybody talks about faith there and righteousness and justification, and they confuse that with impu- imputed righteousness and justification at phase one. And what we've seen tonight is you've got to keep your distinction between imputed righteousness and the justification of salvation and production righteousness and the justification or vindication that comes as a result of sanctification and spiritual growth. So that's where we're going. And that's why we needed to set this up tonight. And we'll review this again and again so we make sure it's inculcated into our thinking with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to study Your Word and to see these tremendous concepts as they lay out for us our spiritual life. 
and the goal and the direction that you did so much for us at the cross. You died for our sins. You paid the penalty for every sin in human history and provided a a vast array of spiritual assets for us for the purpose that we might grow to to express the character of Christ in our lives and production righteousness to the end result that you might be glorified. So, Father, help us to understand these things, to see how they apply to our lives, that we might indeed follow that path that you have laid out for us in your plan because we desire for you to be glorified above all things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.